Welcome to another episode of the Pastor's Call podcast. I'm your host, Joel Webb. Before we begin today's episode, I want to thank the sponsor for the show. It's Blue Water Free Methodist Church, where I have the pleasure of serving. We're an intentional community reflecting Jesus to our world. Today, I'm so thankful to have joining me uh, Matt Whitehead. He is one of the three bishops on the uh, bishop administration team for the Free Methodist Church. Um, We've already actually heard interviews from both Bishop Linda and Bishop Keith, who also serve with Bishop Matt. So just want to thank you so much for taking some time and joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much, Joel. It's great to be with you and to have the chance to talk about the issue of call. Uh, that's one of the things really near and dear to my heart. So look forward to the conversation. Yeah. Well, love just to jump right into it. I'd love for you to share a little bit about uh, your background and what you felt your call into the ministry was. Well, I was raised in a pastor's home. My dad was a free Methodist pastor. And so, you know, in and around ministry all of my life as a child and adolescent. uh, But my parents were really clear that God does the calling. It's not your grandmother. It's not not your parents. And unless God calls in in the uniqueness of the way God works, that um, you, you really should not be in ministry unless you do have a sense of being to articulate what that call looks like. So I actually went into uh, college, uh, two years at Spring Arbor University, and then transferred out and graduated from Seattle Pacific University. I was a political science major, actually headed for law school. I had the the LSAT, the law school admission uh, test brochure on my desk in the dorm room, my junior year of college, getting ready to register, or maybe that may may have been my uh, sophomore year, but anyway, getting ready to register for the LSATs because I was very interested in, in public service, in, in politics, uh, you know, sort of in quotes. Um, but I was part of a small group Bible study with six or eight other college students where, you know, we, uh, we were doing a, a, just a study on the way God works and had the privilege of having a retired free Methodist minist- uh, missionary a uh, couple by the name of Jake and Florence DeShazer. Uh, Jake was a, a Doolittle flyer and was shot down over Japan, dramatically converted in prison. Uh, and they're the, they were the parents of one of the students in, the, in this Bible study that I was a part of. Where we began, they, they were there visiting their daughter and we invited them to be a part of this discussion. And just a very gracious, gentle, but prophetic couple that prayed over us and just, you know, we kind of sat at their feet listening to their wisdom. And in that experience, I felt like God was asking me to consider ministry. So it wasn't a dramatic Damascus Road kind of experience, but it was more a a, a sense in my own heart and spirit that um, this may be the plan that God had for me. And I remember wrestling with that because it wasn't dramatic um, and, and going to see a professor at SPU, Dr. Joe Davis, who is a free Methodist elder and just sort of 
laying this out before him to say, Dr. Davis, I sense that I have a call, but it wasn't dramatic. It was more gentle and gracious and kind of a wooing experience of God saying, will you trust me in this? And his counsel was so wise. Um, and a part of my story too, Joel, is that my dad had a dramatic kind of life altering call. And he never lifted that up as the, you know, as a, as a model, but I knew that story because it was a part of the narrative of our family. And so uh, Dr. Davis and just helping me process um, just reminded me that, that God's call will be unique for each of us and that we shouldn't be looking at someone else and saying, that's the way God will work in my life versus God, I want to be open. I want to, I want to follow you. I want to be obedient. I want to, I want to give that next right. Yes. To say, if you open the doors, uh, I'm willing. And at the same time, you know, I was teaching, I was working in youth ministry, um, volunteering, mentoring some students. And so, um, you know, just in that process then of sort of turning directions, I, I threw away the LSAT brochure and just began to uh, follow that. I had a chance to meet with the conference superintendent at that time here in the Northwest and just had a good conversation. And all that to say that, you know, I think it was sort of like a, a sunset uh, when you're out outside in the early morning when, when it's dark and you see the rays of the sun and you begin to experience the fullness of the light. I think my call was something like that versus a, a dramatic uh, life life altering kind of experience like my father had. But uh, I look back on that to say, uh, without a doubt, God called me and it was valid and it was real. And it was in the uniqueness of my own personality and gifts uh, that God made it clear that that's what I should do. And, you know, we, we believe that God calls and the church confirms. And so a part of that process, obviously, for me was connecting, becoming a, a conference ministerial candidate, going through the process here in the Northwest. And all of that was just a part of my own journey of the, the affirmation that God had called and an understanding that the body of Christ is given the responsibility of affirming and confirming a call on someone. And uh, the people that I worked with uh, were gracious and kind on that journey. But um, that's sort of the way it started for me. So from now, that point of having and understanding God has called me to ministry, what did that you know process then look like? Was there additional education uh, that you took or what kind of what were your practical steps uh, moving forward with that, pursuing that call? <laughs> So, um, again, this would be sort of junior into early senior year of college, just really thinking through what that meant. And, you know, because I was a political science major, I hadn't taken uh, very many theology classes. I'd, I'd done the required ones, but I recognized that I really need, I needed uh, theological preparation. Um, 
And so after I graduated from Seattle Pacific, I was hired as an admissions counselor and worked at SPU for two years in the admissions office, recruiting students. Um, I met my wife, uh, senior year of college. We were married uh, a year after we both graduated and then continued to work there for another year. And then we moved to Portland, Oregon, and I enrolled at Western Evangelical Seminary, which is now a part of the George Fox University system. It's now called Portland Seminary. And went to seminary two years, um, two years, well, two years full time. And then uh, the conference asked us to take an appointment in a community in Southwest Washington, which was about 90 miles away from Portland. So we did that. And then I finished my MDiv uh, over three years going to Portland, driving to Portland, Portland at least one day a week which was a pretty significant commitment. You know, we had two kids during that time, um, pastoring a growing church, a lot of pressure, but it really enabled me to um, combine the things I was learning in seminary with real life local church experience. Um, and finally, I uh, was able to finish the MDiv and <laughs> graduate sort of with, tongue hanging out uh, to, to finish that process, which I was very thankful that I did. And then eventually after, after pastoring, oh, 10 years or so, 10 or 12 years, I enrolled in a doctor of ministry program through Asbury Seminary. And again, it took me five years, six years to complete that. I, you know, I said, I, um, I took a three-year program for the MDiv and um, combined, uh, crammed it into five, and I did a D-min uh, three-year program and crammed it into six years. So, um, but both of those, both of those ed educational experiences at Western Evangelical and at Asbury have just been so important, so formational in in many many ways that uh, I just look back with uh, great thankfulness to God to open those doors and to provide that because theological education is important we believe that as wesleyans mm -hmm. we we want to uh, we want to follow god's leading in the on the journey and in the process of, of sharpening our our minds to uh the kinds of things that we need to be effective leaders in the church Amen. now that first appointment you were at how long were you there for uh, we were there for seven years so out of those uh, seven years, what would, uh, you know, being <clears throat> your first appointment, what was maybe a, a high point and a low point of that, that seven year period at that first appointment, kind of as you're <clears throat> finding your feet <laughs> as a, as a pastor, right? Yeah, that was a great experience. It was, uh, um, as I said, kind of a uh, uh, community in Southwest Washington, kind of halfway between Seattle and Portland, Oregon. Um, the people were incredibly gracious and kind <laughs> with me, um, you know, because we had a young family. Uh, I was going to seminary one day a week. The church was growing. We're seeing new converts and, you know, just so much positive happening. And they gave me a lot of grace. You know, I've, I've been able to go back there and, um, and just thank the congregation for their mentoring of me. Um, 
So that was that was a great experience. You know, I think the the low points that we experienced in that past in that pastorate were more around issues of people that we worked with, trying to encourage them, trying to see them grow spiritually, and for whatever reasons, um, deciding they didn't want to follow God, they didn't want to be a part of the community of faith. Um, you know, I certainly look back on some stupid things I did. Just, I think, immaturity in what it means to be a pastor. Um, you know, working with some really seasoned, wise veteran leaders in that church that uh, just had a lot of wisdom, as I said, who gave me a ton of grace. Um, but I think the people issues and, and some of the leadership issues were low points for me where I I wish I'd done some things differently. You know, there are, <laughs> looking back now, I see some people in that church. Um, I, I, I shouldn't say some people, perhaps maybe one family that was pretty manipulative. And I think I gave in because I didn't really understand the dynamics of what was happening. Now, looking back, I would say, man, I would... I would handle that so differently. And, you know, even uh, some some members of this family that kind of personally attacked us. Um, and I didn't I didn't handle that really well. I wish I had been more differentiated, I guess we would say today, to be able to recognize that, you know, it's okay if somebody doesn't like you. I mean, in leadership, uh, we we have to settle that that issue of, of not pleasing everyone. And boy, if we don't get that figured out, we are in deep trouble. And I think uh, just because of the nature of my personality, um, I, I really hadn't come to a clear understanding of what it means to be um, a leader who's willing to stand up and uh, lovingly but firmly uh, deal with people who have other agendas that are really not pleasing to God. And maybe, you know, because of some of their own brokenness, they they haven't really, they didn't really understand those things. But as I said, my my regrets more relate to leadership issues I wish I'd done differently. And then just the sadness over some people who made destructive decisions to not uh, not follow follow God and become a part of the community of faith. So from that first pastorate, and obviously, as you said, you've had, you know, you wrapped up your MDiv and worked on a, on a demon as well. But could you give us kind of the 30,000 foot timeline from, from some of those milestones up to where you are today? Now, um, one of the three bishops of the Free Methodist Church. Yeah, so we, uh, we moved in 1990 from that church in southwest washington to a church in the metro seattle area where we were for 10 years uh and then in the in the fall of 1999 i was elected as the superintendent here in the pacific northwest and so i was superintendent for almost 20 years um leading up to 2019 uh, gc 2019 where Linda Adams and Keith Coward and I were elected as bishops. 
Um, so two pastorates over 17 years in two very different communities, very different churches. The church we pastored in Seattle uh, had a lot of professional people. It was kind of a, a suburban, suburban but urban community in Metro Seattle. A very different dynamics in terms of the congregation, uh, but very very similar kinds of things in terms of the challenges and the realities that uh, that we face there. Yeah. Now, one of the one of the things that you know maybe a lot of people might not think about is the difference between uh, a role of a superintendent or maybe in a different polity structure they're called a bishop or called something else. But what would you say were kind of some of the key uh, differences um, between pastoring and then versus or compared to being a superintendent? Because um, I'm sure there's quite a few differences. Um, you know, maybe highlight, you know, for those who don't know kind of what those more strategic levels of leadership are compared to the kind of day-to-day -day aspect of, of pastoring. Yeah, it's a it's a really significant difference. And in, in our polity, kind of the way that we do church, the annual conference and the superintendent uh, really are given the responsibility of stewarding the lives of pastors and churches and working through the Ministerial Education and Guidance Board the ministerial appointments committee to really seek God's very best. Um, and so, you know, I describe the superintendency as sometimes being like a, a cheerleader and at other times being like the vice principal. Um, you know, we get, uh, I, I had the privilege of coming alongside local churches in times of celebration and in uh, uh, just honoring what God was doing but also, I think perhaps more importantly, uh, coming alongside churches in times of crisis or transition, where I really felt like the local church leadership got to see the value of belonging to a denominational family. Because in our polity, as you know, Joel, the, the model is that local church leaders and conference leaders work together. But we are in an appointment system where pastors are appointed by the bishop and by the ministerial appointments committee and the superintendent. And I, I felt like there was a sweet spot in, in every interaction that I had in a local church for people to say, okay, yeah, this, this denominational thing, this connection is good. And, you know, working with Matt, working with other leaders uh, was a positive experience for our congregation. You know, the, you just naturally over the 20 years had, a number of challenging experiences in local churches where there was conflict or division or uh, thankfully in a few only in a few cases pastoral moral failure that uh, i had to deal with as a as a superintendent uh, but again even in those experiences it was an opportunity to to see that because we're connected together uh, as a as a family you know to use the expression that's that's popular today. We're better together. We really are. And in our polity, a local church is, isn't its own island. It's a part of a family where hopefully conference leadership can bring in some objective perspective. Because again, I learned over the years that many times con at local churches are not uh, super objective about themselves and what they need. They do know the context of their own ministry best.
but when wise discerning conference leaders come alongside, you have the best of an objective set of eyes and perspective and also local church leaders who know their own context. And in healthy situations, I think that brings in the very best of what it means to be a connectional denomination, that we work together for the good of God's kingdom. You know, we are not in a congregational quality system, but we're not in a strict denominational appointment system either. Our our, uh, our pastoral appointment process, our process in working with local churches is really a hybrid in the middle with an understanding that the denomination does appoint. But in, in, in healthy situations, we want to have the affirmation of local church leadership, church board, local church delegates to see that, uh, to see good decisions that are made as we listen to one another. And a phrase that I love, which is not original with me, that we would pray that all heads would be nodding in the same direction. <laughs> and when that doesn't happen, uh, you know, there, there are variations of all of that process. But, um, you know, I do think that the role of the, of the conference and the superintendent particularly is the place of greatest effectiveness in the denomination. You know, I've had the privilege of serving as a bishop for the last four years, which has been just a, a wonderful experience. But I think the place of greatest effectiveness is at the annual conference level. And, you know, in, in my role now, I work with superintendents. And so I'm able to provide coaching and mentoring and care. But in terms of impact on the local church, clearly there's, there is a benefit for a national vision. But the role of the annual conference to provide strategic leadership and to cast vision around that question or the understanding that we can accomplish so much more together than any one of us could do on our own. And that's the value of a connectional denomination. You know, having a, a breadth that is literally around the world, but also regional and local. Uh, I think that's one of the geniuses of our system in the Free Methodist Church. And we are not perfect by any means. But I do think that the the role of the conference, the role of the superintendent is so important in terms of the their ability to come alongside a local church. And, you know, they're, depending on the conference, there may be district leaders or assistant superintendents. Uh, but I think the the polity is, is designed with that intent of serving, coming alongside, helping, encouraging local churches and leaders to be uh, to be effective in the in the ways we communicate the gospel and in the ways that we uh, we make ourselves available to to facilitate people finding Jesus and growing in their faith and understanding of who God is. Amen. Well, just in the way of comment, as someone who didn't grow up in the Free Methodist Church, uh, I I've certainly appreciated uh, the the balance and structure. Uh, I, I feel it brings a good balance of local church and denomination denominational organization, and so I've appreciated that. Um, but for any person who's listening, regardless of your denomination structure, there's an opportunity for the local church and the denomination as a whole to to work together. And I think there's a benefit, you know, when that happens, not exclusively bottom up, but not exclusively top down either. Um, and you know, working for the for the larger uh, goal of the kingdom of God. And so there's certainly uh, a benefit there. 
one of the things I've I've appreciated in uh, talking to Bishop Keith and Bishop Linda as well is was getting their uh, kind of their own thoughts and their own heart as well on this thought of the free Methodist way. Um, you know, especially for someone like me coming into the movement, it, it's really kind of laid out a vision um, for who we are as a denomination. Um, and, you know, hopefully it gives opportunities for other denominations to assess who are we really in the 21st century? How do we accomplish the mission of the kingdom? Um, so I'd love to get uh, your thoughts for, for a couple minutes about kind of your perspective during that development and really what has stood out to you from that uh, from that process. It was really one of the benefits of the, the COVID shutdown that Linda and Keith and I had a lot more time together. Um, and so, you know, we were, uh, you know, I was in, in, in my office here in the basement of our home in Seattle. Uh, and like all of us around the country and around the world, couldn't travel. And it, before the outbreak of COVID, in some of our early discussions after our election in, in um, July of 2019, we were talking about the necessity of providing clarity and greater identity to what does it mean to be free Methodist? And one of the questions we wrestled with is, what, what is the uniqueness of a free Methodist disciple? And how, you know, how, how could we articulate in, in the context of our culture with everything happening and, and COVID and the, the racial tension and political divisions? What could we say about what does it mean to be free Methodist? And so we embarked on this journey of seeking the Lord together a lot of a lot of uh, time like this on uh, on Zoom or FaceTime or uh, Teams, um, just just discussing that. We also had some in-person meetings. We met with a wise consultant who helped us as well. And again, around that question of how can we how can we better identify. What does it mean to be free Methodist? And what are some unique parts of our own story and our own identity that are not going to be, they're not going to be descriptors for other denominations? This is uniquely free Methodist. And understanding that we have a place in, in God's vineyard, we are no better than any other denomination that lifts up Jesus and sees uh, sees Jesus as the only way and believes in the authority of the scripture and the cross and the risen Christ. But yet there's a uniqueness about our story uh, that God has, uh, God has blessed us along the way. But how do we articulate that in a 21st century way that would make sense to people? So again, over time, through prayer, a lot of trial and error. I mean, we literally had sheets up on walls with you know, I, I, I certainly hundreds of descriptive phrases, and over the process of time, you know, as you as you come down to uh, what is it that we're trying to say, we we came up with these five declarative statements in the Free Methodist way that we believe bring the the best of our history, and also um, our hopes and dreams and prayers for the future of what God, God might want to God, uh, what God might want to do through the Free Methodist Church, which we we decided, um, you know, and this is no knock on any previous leadership. 
But for this time, we felt like one of the most important tasks was to ask that question is what what is the uniqueness of the free methodist church and how do we both looking back and looking ahead articulate uh, the dynamic of what it means uniquely to be free methodist and so that was the that was the process and then the birth of the free methodist way and you know one of the things about that whole process joel as well as to understand the resonance that we've heard uh, as we've talked about this, as we've articulated it, as we've shared it. And then, you know, you know, a vision uh, or an identity is catching on when you begin to hear it back. And when, as we travel around the country, particularly, uh, you know, we're hearing the Free Methodist Way coming back to us in terms of our interaction in local conferences and local churches, which is, which is super encouraging. But, you know, it was one of the one of the blessings, as somebody said, never waste a crisis. And we felt like the COVID crisis uh, really helped us to hone in on these five value statements and their, uh, their connection, as I said, with the best of our history and our hopes and dreams for the future. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, certainly, as questions of identity become such a big thing in our culture, you know, having our identity in Christ first and foremost, and then even our identity of who we uh, normally commune with is, is important to continue on in our mission. So thank you for sharing that. There's a Charles Spurgeon quote I love. He talks about living in the Bible, but reading many good books. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, the word of God has transformed each of our lives. But what have been one or some of those good books that you've just really enjoyed? Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's like asking which one of my children do I love the most? How do I? <laughs> um, but a couple of books I just say in the interest of time. Uh, I think Henry Nouwen's book, The Wounded Healer, um, was formational in my understanding of what it means to be a leader in God's church. And, and understanding some of uh, Nouwen's own journey and that he finished his life uh I believe it was in the Toronto area working in a in a home for disabled adults. But he talks about that, you know, the wounds we naturally have and the brokenness are places where God can use them to help us not only in better understanding ourselves, but also in um, in a way that we we share Jesus with the world around us. And that was really freeing. To, to read that, to understand that concept, um, to be able to uh, to know that in my own journey and story as a pastor and as a leader, uh, some of those things, you know, that um, I regret or I wish I would have done differently or some of the wounds, you know, in ministry, um, the question isn't, will we be hurt by people? The question is, what are we going to do with it? And do we hold on to it? Do we hoard it? Do we mull it over and over again? Or do we just simply provide it as an offering and say, Jesus, I give this to you. I can't. I can't sort it out. But please help me to not, not allow this to derail me. And, you know, that concept of the wounded healer, who in spite of our brokenness and wounds is effective uh, as we share the good news of Jesus. Um, 
with a with a world that is broken and hurting as we are. Um, second book, probably I would reference, and again I could give you ten, but um, in, in kind of on my on my journey as a pastor, as a leader, as a Christ follower, I came across Ruth Haley Barton's book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And I don't know if you or our listeners are familiar with Ruth Haley Barton and her works, but she's written Sacred Rhythms. Um, it's a great book on how groups discern God's will together, which is very helpful for local church boards and leadership teams and how we listen to God's voice. But strengthening the soul of your leadership really is a call to a life of spiritual formation and a call to really go deep in the things of god and as a result of that reading that book i connected with a spiritual director who you know we meet regularly i was in in portland to see him several weeks ago he knows he knows my story and my journey at one point you know he he recommended he said man i think it'd probably be good for you to get some counseling around this so i connected with a christian counselor just some stuff we were processing from the past. Um, but that book really is a, is a call to um, deepening our relationship with Jesus. You know, as a result of reading that book, I, I did an annual solitude retreat, which I, <laughs> I would have to honestly say, Joel, I really didn't enjoy when I started it because, you know, I'm an extrovert. <laughs> I'm a people person. But, you know, lock me away in a room or in a cabin or in a hotel room by myself for five days. It's like, oh, oh, Lord, what am I going to do? But, you know, taking the scriptures and good books and long walks was so helpful. And I think both the, you know, as I said, the commitment to engage with a spiritual director commitment for a solitude retreat, commitment to deep, deepening, you know, as the title says, deepening um, or strengthening the soul of my leadership was just a great, great call. And the, that book particularly has impacted the way that I lead uh, today. Um, I read that book a number of years ago and then had the privilege of bringing Ruth Haley Barton to uh, pastor's day in the Pacific pastor's retreat in the Pacific Northwest conference with our pastors. And then, um, there's a whole series of things that really came out of that experience that have been really formational uh, on my own journey. Hmm, wonderful. Well, uh, Bishop Matt, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, sharing your story, uh, some of your perspectives on, uh, pastoring and superintendent positions and, um, and everything. And it's been encouraging for myself. I hope for the listeners. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, well, thank you so much, Joel. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, just think a little bit about some of these things and, and hope that, that something I said will be significant for, uh, for your listeners and for you, but it's great to meet you. And thanks for the opportunity. And I want to thank the sponsor for the show. It's Blue Water Free Methodist Church. We're an intentional community reflecting Jesus to our world. And I want to thank you, the listener, for joining us on another episode of the Pastor's Call podcast. Our hope, our goal, our vision is to encourage those who are interested, seeking, pursuing, or already in the pastoral ministry by hearing the stories of those who have gone before. 
You can find us wherever you're listening to this now on every podcast platform. Please do subscribe. Episodes come out every single Wednesday. And if you leave a review, it makes it easier for others to find our podcast. So in the meantime, share this with your friends, share it with your family, share it with your pastor. And we'll see you on the next episode of Pastor's Club. God bless.